1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, biking out in the mountains, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, is an author services company dedicating to helping academic scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication as well as helping with grant proposals for competitive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tiffany Gasparini, Senior Science Editor from Johns Hopkins University Press. Tiffany acquires books in life and physical sciences for both scholarly and popular audiences. She's been building STEM publishing portfolios at scientific and university publishing houses for over 20 years. Tiffany is committed to amplifying underrepresented voices in science and is thrilled by stories of scientific adventure as well as vital research and professional volumes. Her list in, focuses on evo- evolutionary and organismal biology, natural history, paleontology, wildlife science, astronomy, and ecology, as well as physics and mathematics. Recent books she has published inclu- include Quantum Steampunk, the winner of the American Association of Publishers Prose Award for Best Pop Science Book, Why Sharks Matter, by prominent science communicator and marine scientist David Schiffman, and Tree Story, a New York Times- new and notable book, as well as the winner of the World Wildlife Fund's um, John Walker's Prize. She's particularly excited to be working on forthcoming books investigating the secret thoughts of Jurassic Dinosaurs and mathematical drag queens. If she isn't reading, Tiffany may be found wrestling Rottweilers, deciphering teenage slang, or exploring forests, oceans, and ancient ruins. Tiffany, I think you uh, definitely win the award for best intro, um, no doubt. That took that, Took that unanimously. And I think you're probably the uh only the only person who in their bio includes scientific is thrilled by scientific adventure. So um tell me how you make what could be perceived from the outside um to be boring topics into such exciting ones.
0: Sure. Uh I think you know I didn't mean to um get into scientific publishing at the outset. And so uh I always wanted to be a publisher. Um, I worked in, uh, libraries from the time I think I was, you know, legally allowed to work in New York state where I grew up. Uh, and then I worked in bookstores. I think this is a story lots of publishing professionals have. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, my favorite point of working at the bookstore was that, you know, the magic hour in the evening where you're about to close. There's not very many people that are left there and you get to just sort of like, Hang out. The register's not going, and so of course you work in a bookstore. You're a nerd. You sit there and read. And so um, I knew that I was going to work uh, in publishing in some sense, uh, but I didn't. I didn't know how I was going to do it. So we we had this book uh, that was something like you know 101 jobs for English majors or something, right? And I was a, obviously I was a, a comparative literature major, um, and acquisitions editor my position is in the a's so that was in the the very beginning and so i looked at that and i thought oh yeah that was it it was it was it was sort of like one quick glance and i was hooked and you know and i said oh i'm somebody who gets to dream up book ideas and like sit and read manuscripts for a living and decide what gets published yeah that's for me um but you know i had no idea how i was gonna get there um, so, so what ended up happening is it turns out it's really difficult to break into publishing when you don't have connections, right? I was at Mount Holyoke, I'm in the Boston area, um, and, and I didn't know people in publishing here or really anywhere. And so I you know, was sending out letters of inquiry, et cetera, and I finally got a bite from someone in, uh, at Butterworth Heinemann, right, which was then an independent company that had been bought by Elsevier. A scientific publisher. And uh, in fact, it was a sales secretary job. Um, and I, I managed to get that position and figured I'll just figure it out from here. I'll, <laughs> I'll make it I'll get this job to become an editorial job somehow come hell or high water. And so it was a mistake, kind of that I moved into scientific publishing, I thought I would publish feminist literary criticism, or, you know, like, um, I don't know, you know, postmodernist poetry or something like that. And so uh, instead, I fell into the situation where I became ensconced in the world of science. And as an outsider who doesn't have a PhD and studied literature throughout their entire sort of career uh, academically. Um, I think I, I have an interesting perspective, which is that I need an author to convince me to be interested in the material that they're publishing as a book nerd uh, who reads like fantasy sci-fi. So I, I uh, I'm in a position where I can help an author be able to develop an interesting story, be able to convey their adventures and science um, because I'm I'm the audience. In a way, um, I'm not taking for granted that these. Oh, yes, this is important research. Yes, it is. But how do you convey that in a way that's going to get readers interested? I'm one of those readers, and so I think it, it puts me it puts me in a distinct advantage uh, in in some ways as an editor, uh, and hopefully as someone who provides guidance to my authors.
1: I love it. I, I'm I'm sensing a theme already quickly, which is that. You seem to take situations which others may perceive as disadvantages, um, not knowing anyone in the industry or um, not having the background in in scientific publishing, and and kind of flipping them on their heads and saying, "Well, what can I make out of this?" and 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 and, and really kind of turn into a blessing. And and the truth is, it's a really interesting kind of way that you present um, the acquisitions editor as a reader. You know, I think I've thought around that idea many times. I've never heard it um, described so kind of. Succinctly and, and clearly, which is that, you know, specifically because you don't have a PhD, it allows you to enter into this kind of, um, how do we say, you know, kind of lay reading, layperson reading of the text and say, well, does this keep me up at night or does it put me to sleep? Right. And like, do I want to, do I want to flip the next to the next page? Um, and I think that's something which, you know, I, especially when we're in the research kind of frame of mind. Is easy to be forgotten, right? It's like, well, this is, is this important research or not, is generally the question that we're trained to think about, especially scientists. And then to move from there to, well, who cares um, whether or not this is interesting or not is a question that, you know, maybe scientists aren't as used to answering.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's important on the other side of things for me to be able to look from that perspective in this big picture way and look at emerging research, right? Because obviously, you know, that's at the heart of the work that you're doing as a scientific publisher is to look at what is really um, interesting and impactful research that's happening. So again, coming at it from an outside perspective, um, I'm able to I guess, identify emerging trends and areas of science that maybe aren't as sort of obvious in terms of the research that's being done and look at them and think this is something that really deserves to be more widely disseminated.
1: Got it. So tell, tell us a little bit about kind of, um, you know, your role as a senior editor, you're now a senior editor um, at, at Hopkins. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about kind of what that role entails um, you know, and, and uh, it'd be interesting to hear in general, kind of what that role entails, maybe for anyone, but specifically also, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your specific, um, niche, which is science publishing, which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand is not the, not the typical in general university publishing, and also probably not the, you know, not the standard, um, in, at your own press either.
0: So I think university presses do have, uh, science, uh, portfolios. Um, but I think you're right in that they don't tend to be the more high profile portfolios at a lot of publishing houses where there's a focus on scholarly humanities, um, unless you are an MIT or a Johns Hopkins, uh, where I think it's perfectly appropriate and only makes sense to have a really robust scientific publishing program. But it is not the same as working for, uh, you know, a big global STEM powerhouse, a corporate publisher like I did for the first time. I don't know, a long time of my career, 15 years or something, um, where that is all they do. So uh, so it's interesting from that perspective to see sort of, this is the first time I ever worked alongside humanities editors in my position at Johns Hopkins. And it's interesting to see how the work that I do as an acquisitions editor differs from humanities work. Um, I think it's interesting in that scientists um, are not trained um, to to write in a way either for a broad audience or really for what I would call a long form or a narrative, right? Scientists are trained to write, to publish in journals, particularly. Um, and that's different uh, in a lot of ways. They're not encouraged to publish books. And in fact, sometimes the attitudes around um, publishing books uh, are... Mm, I'm trying to think of a way that I can say this, uh, are repressive, not only unenthusiastic, but but repressive, right? Because what happens is um, publishing your research in journals uh, with high impact factors um, should beget citations, right? And then that begets more visibility for the science that a particular researcher is doing. And then that begets grant money, right? Which is... Uh, necessary and desirable for the universities that the researchers work for or their institutions even if not and you know affiliated with the university books don't have an impact factor um, traditionally, right? They haven't had sort of a formal process of measuring citations um, that's foundational to journals. And so it's harder to measure what's the impact, right? It's not necessarily you take a book and you know this is going to make grant money for the university. Um, I think it's getting better because of the, introduction of, the introduction of altmetrics um, is, is something that's sort of beginning to encourage a more holistic and, and maybe even philosophical view about what constitutes impact. So things are changing, but I still, um, I've never had this thing in my life that apparently is called a mythical slush pile, right? I mean, I, that's, that's not a thing that many scientific publishers, I think, have. I don't get many projects, as they say, over the transom, ones that just come to me sort of unsolicited. Um, instead, I'm a hustler, right, is what I notice. And that is something that I notice about a lot of scientific publishers, because, in fact, you have to be really proactive. Um, I have to be convincing. I, I have to work around the inhuman schedules of my authors who don't get time to write as part of their professional remit and may even be sort of going against the wishes or thoughts of other other people, right, in their careers in order to take the time and energy that's so precious to be able to do this. Um, and then I have to work really hard to make good on the promises about publishing a book and how it will make a difference to these authors, um, their visibility, their careers, and their ability then to impact the world. That's aside from an impact factor. Um, so, yeah, I sorry, guess go ahead. I no, I guess I jumped right into uh, how is being a scientific publisher maybe different than a humanities publisher, but I didn't talk about what it is I do. <laughs> which, I guess <laughs> sort of, I mean I may be making undue assumptions about uh, about the audience for the podcast and what they know about publishing
1: <laughs> as a whole. Yeah. I think there's probably a mix, so you know, but 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 yeah, what it, it would be great if you could. T- I, I do want to get back to the. The the this discussion about publishing in the sciences and 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 the impact um, question because there's a lot of I think there's some interesting things to unpack. but yeah let, let's um I'm, I'm I am curious to hear from you about like kind of um, how you do go about um, your role within the context of you know what you everything you've said until now which is that right it's um it doesn't work the same way as humanities and social sciences and STEM researchers aren't necessarily incentivized um, to publish in fact. Um, you could say they're de- inset- disincentivized. Yes. So how do you go about your 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 job and what is your role?
0: So I think, um, I, right. So from what the book about 101 uh, jobs for English majors told me, I was going to be hanging out and reading manuscripts all the live long day. As it turns out, that is not in fact <laughs> at, at all. Well, it's a very small proportion of what I do. Um, I think my job, as it turns out, as an ACAD is much more dynamic and multifaceted and honestly challenging than that. Um, so I'm really, as an acquisitions editor, I'm driving the entire process of publishing a book from the sort of inception of the idea through all the way to the promotion of the book once it's released into the wild, as it were. Um, so I'm writing marketing copy and I'm agonizing over profit and loss statements. And, um, you know, I'm presenting project proposals before stakeholders. I'm doing image research, uh, for cover designs, even, um, I'm publishing a book about opossums and my cover designers will ask me, Hey, what's a good picture of an opossum we can put on the front cover of this book. And that will send me down a hole, not rabbit hole, but opossum hole as it were. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm squinting at page proofs. I'm developing existing manuscripts. Um, I'm I'm harassing authors to turn them in. Uh, I'm negotiating contracts and I'm chasing invoices and I'm searching for grant sources. Um, I'm talking authors off the roof, right? I mean, if you're convincing somebody to write a book who didn't maybe think it was the best idea in the first place, then you better be able to deal with what the potential blowback of that might be when it turns out it's not such an easy job to write a book. Um, so I kind of joke around, and you know, I think if I'm a lawyer and a business consultant and a researcher and a writer and a therapist. Uh, but I'm very rarely sitting down and reading a manuscript, which, you know, maybe is sad. Uh, And I love it when I'm able to do it, but, but it's, uh, I don't know. I think editor is kind of a misnomer. uh, I'm not sitting there with a red pen most of the time. I think probably publisher makes more sense. Um, But of course people think of that as sort of an entity as opposed to a person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought that there's gotta be, There's got to be a better title than Acquisitions Editor because it 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 makes it, it, it. No, I don't think anyone from the outside understands. Like, how do you acquire? It sounds like you're acquiring an editor. I don't know. I, I, I I'm, I'm open for suggestions. Of people want to yes. leave us a comment on what
0: a <laughs> replacement yeah. name? Because I, Much I've always hated it. Who dreams up the books and gets people to write them and then helps them publish them. Actually, be called. <laughs> that's publisher that sounds
1: like a publisher to me. Uh, yeah. yeah,
0: one, <laughs> one thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. Good, that's great. Thank you. That's very helpful. And, and the other thing that you you mentioned, you touched on briefly, but maybe we can go into this a little bit further is, you know, um, you know, you mentioned you started at Elsevier. Uh, Elsevier is obviously, you know, the world's, you know, largest academic publisher and and very much a a, a corporate entity, whereas Hopkins is very much a mission-driven publisher. Um, So can you explain, you know, what it means to be a mission-driven publisher um, and how that might impact your work?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. It's one of my favorite things about the job that I do now. Um, So I guess what I mean is that I can publish books that uh, disseminate conversations, research um, that benefits the greater good. Right. Um, My books can espouse an opinion. Um, They don't have to be sort of bloodlessly agnostic right, which is something that a scientific publisher, you know, and a scientist is, that's very ingrained, right? I mean, you cannot sort of have an ax to grind one way or the other when you're presenting research. I mean, my, my books, they have to be evidence-based as all good science is, but but they can be passionate, they can be urgent, they can be persuasive. Um, so in talking about Elsevier, it's a, a way that I, I try to explain this as um, with a sort of anecdote that I founded the renewable energy books publishing program during my years at Elsevier. Um, And that was, you know, heartily supported uh, by, you know, the, the upper management at Elsevier, they, you know, provided funding to be able to do it and, and, um, and saw that vision, but, but it was with one major caveat. My boss said to me, no Al Gore books, right? That was the (laughs) no sort of, environmental activism. Uh, But as it turns out, it's kind of difficult to publish books on renewable energy and sustainability without, in fact, espousing the opinion that sustainability is important because fossil fuels are problematic, right? Uh, It's sort of foundational. Why are you publishing this in the first place? Um, So at Hopkins, I'd like to think that I could publish Al Gore uh, should he come calling. Uh, but, you know, in, in general, it's it's for certain that I can publish books that are um, unequivocally, um, they, they state that we had better do something about anthropogenic harm to our planet, Um I think I can also be very purposeful, which is important to me in using my publishing program to signal the signal boost, the the voices of people from underrepresented groups in science. That's another way that I think of as being outwardly mission driven as a publishing house. And that I'm not just sort of tolerated in doing so at Hopkins, but that it is really supported and, and encouraged. So those kinds of things um, weren't necessarily available to me in terms of the way that I built my publishing program um, when I worked for a big STEM house, but that are in fact um, important, right, that are central to the the goals of Hopkins.
1: So, I mean, based on the conversation until now, I think that you should pursue Al Gore. Um, that's my that's my personal opinion. You should search him out online and um, and convince him to write a book. If anyone can do it, I'm convinced that you could. Um, but on a more on a more serious note, um, I was hoping maybe you could give us an example or two of a book, um, you know that that you've worked on at Hopkins um, that you would say either is a really good representation of you know bringing out a vo- bringing out someone's research who just kind of wouldn't have gotten um, seen otherwise or that has a real world impact in a way that, you know, maybe you're, you're kind of uh, sitting on the fence, um, you know, uh, not taking a stand, uh, you know, research that you've done previously would not have, would not have enabled. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, as an acquisitions editor, I think a lot about um, how do my books really uh, impact the world as a whole, and I know my authors think about it, right? If you're looking for other reasons besides the sort of humanities publisher parish paradigm, uh, in order for, for to take the time to publish, you want to know that you're making an impact, I think, in the real world, um, and you know, an early victory that I often think about actually from my elsewhere years. Uh, where I was doing maybe undercover, undercover uh, mission-driven publishing. Don't don't tell anybody, but, <laughs> um, but but during that time, I published a book about nuclear safety um, from Balraj Sagal, uh, with a lot of people from the UN involved, and the content that was in that book ended up improving safety protocols in light water nuclear reactors, which we were then um, Enacted in a bunch of different uh, scenarios with reactors all over the world, and I thought, okay, like literally saving the world one book at a time here. No nuclear disasters, right? This is this is a reason to keep publishing these kinds of books, even when the job is challenging. Um, I guess I would say a more recent example would be the book that I just published a couple months ago with Carol Chambers and Carrie Nicholson is their volume about women uh, working in the wildlife uh, profession. And so it was a contributed, is a contributed volume that has um, a lot of different women from across the wildlife profession that are also talking about their experiences, and it really brought to light some pretty serious problems uh, with the way that women are treated, wildlife biologists are treated. Um, and so what the um, what the editors and the authors did is they included suggested activities and sort of methods that could be incorporated for addressing these kinds of inequities. Um, and so that's now being widely adopted in, in courses and professional seminars. So I think we have the ability to create a more just and equitable world through books that we're publishing. That's that's profound. Right. Um, and then, you know, there are sort of more personal, real world impacts. Um, an author whose name that I won't mention here for safety reasons um, was able to leave a really intolerable position in Sarajevo um, and uh, and find a safer environment for herself and her two young sons as a result of having published the book and then gotten visibility um, in different parts of the world. Um, and so things like that are really important to me. Um, one that I didn't plan, sort of, like, I, to talk about, um, and I hope I'm able to do so in a, in a fairly articulate fashion, because it's just happened, is that my author, Justin Schmidt, who is the, the author of um, Sting of the Wild, right, they call him the King of Sting, and he uh, has done research on stinging insects, right, and as a result, he's been stung by, like, 500 different species of stinging insects throughout his career. Uh, and, uh, and he's doing it, um, you know, his research is applicable in terms of coming up with things like um, alternatives to opiates, to opioids um, for, for pain management, right? Looking at the venom and the stings and what happens in the body. Um, and so it's got these really profound sort of real life potential scientific impacts, um, but he passed away uh, um, just this last weekend, um, a week ago, you know, just Saturday. Um, and, and he used to share with me his fan mail, right? Some of the most sort of to him, important fan mail that he got. And I was remembering this one, um, piece of fan mail that he got, and it was from a, a little girl's mom. Um, and the girl, um, had a really devastating epilepsy And it led her to go into these like excruciating sort of spirals of depression and anxiety. She was nine years old. Um, And, and somehow listening to Justin's book on audio, um, pulled her out of those suicidal spirals. Something about it just resonated to her and hearing him talk about his work. um, And I think what a legacy, right? And that's just one person, one impact, but you know, again I looked at it and I and went, Oh yeah, that's why I do this for a living.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's amazing. It's really amazing. I think to be able to 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 get to a point where where you can look at research in such a humanizing way is is so powerful and so important. And I think it's either you know, you're the way you present it is is, is in, in many ways so different from how we kind of generally approach research. Um, but also such a breath of fresh air in the sense of, you know, well, why, why right? Like why, why don't we tell the stories behind the science or the, the scientists behind what's going on? Because these people are, you know, they are generally in science despite being able to get better you know, quote in quotes, better, more well-paid positions in other places, being able to take their talents and work for a pharmaceutical company or work for a, you know, a, a, a you know, a startup. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing necessarily to say wrong with those things. It's just, yeah. you know, they are pursuing a, a, a passion of love. Um, you know, and, you know, I describe the way I describe it in my business, when when people are sending us their work for for editing or for translation is that, you know, they're they're dropping their baby um off at us and um yep. they expect to uh they expect to have get it back well well changed and and, and taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um and it's so you know the hearing you speak about it the way you do makes me think like, well, why are, why isn't this the tenor of why isn't this more the tenor of conversation? And and this this is actually a good way to kind of I think branch to the next topic, which anyone who listens to me too often, and I hope that you don't because I'm sure I bore you, but um, (laughs) knows that I, I, you know, I had a very big wake up call over the course of the pandemic um, about the fact that the scientific method is not necessarily um, something that everyone uh, appreciates or um, as, as internalized. Um, And so I guess I wonder, do you see, you know, Humanization of science and 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 really telling the story behind the people and 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 also their science as a way to kind of reach beyond the ivory tower and maybe reach some of the folks that um, wouldn't have been able to access it otherwise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big part of that mission, isn't it? Right when we're talking about disseminating information. There's a piece where I think every scientist, in some sense, right, you get caught up in in sort of speaking to other researchers, and that's what journals publishing does, right? As it takes the the steps that you make forward in terms of the science, and then it, you know, as the the scientific world becomes more global and collaborative, you are getting that research out there in the hopes that it then impacts the next step and maybe somebody else's research findings, right? So, so that's a significant piece, and maybe the primary piece of what scientists are thinking about pursuing. But then there's this piece about, you know, what, what I'll call, for lack of a better term, you know, real world impacts. And and what I think that really means is is a kind of scientific evangelism in a way. Um, and so that's preaching beyond the choir of other scientists. But but in order to do that. Um, you have to be able to draw people in right who are not already invested in 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 the work that you're doing in that same way and perhaps not even familiar let alone invested um with relation to oh the pandemic and the the piece about the reputation of science um that that we've been looking at I mean we we've seen the rise of dangerous anti-science sentiment just sort of exploding over the last few years and that's you know just the anti-vaxxers but then climate change denial so there's a politically motivated in the service of autocrats and ill-intentioned corporate players i would say and so how do you fight against that right and and you don't fight against that just by talking to other researchers right You have to fight against that by, by broadcasting, um, in a, in a way to do that is this piece, you know, you mentioned humanizing science, right. And I feel like as a scientific publisher, what I can do is, is try to connect what scientists are doing with daily lives, right. Of, of a broad swath of people so that you know, we can see the relevance and the importance, um, these aren't just geeks in lab coats, you know, that they're, they're us and, and they're to be respected and they're, they're important, right, to, to good quality of life and, and to, you know, I mean, not to be melodramatic about it, but to, to our future, right, um, and so, so if you know that that's what you need to do, right, in order for the ripples in the pond to grow larger, in order for things to Im- have a broader impact in the world writ large, um, I think this piece that I try to do with um, narrative science, it ends up being a big part of that. Um, and so, so I have these books like The Sting of the Wild, like Tree Story that was mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, um, that are about contextualizing science through story, right? We know that humans learn through stories. We know that narration draws us in, right? Um, and so I feel like having a narrative backbone to a scientific story, um, and whether and and maybe having it in an envelope of you know what I was calling scientific adventure, right? Going out in the field and what happens when you're searching for the world's oldest tree, or, you know, um, the elusive jaguar that's returning to the American Southwest, right? I mean, there's those very compelling pieces about what scientists are out there doing. Um, and, and then, you know, if you draw people in that way, you can talk about the science itself in a way that, that resonates and, and keeps people who might not otherwise be interested, interested. Um, I think that you can you can open people's minds that way, and having that as a narrative, that's a counter narrative to this anti science sentiment. I think is maybe the best thing that I can do as a scientific publisher in terms of helping to fight against it.
1: Yeah, you know, you have really kind of dri- driven home for me this. You know, I, I I was always kind of neutral about whether science. How, to what degree science should be making a concerted effort um, to, you know, to go beyond itself because, you know, every, every choice that you make comes at the expense of an, you know, another choice and, and, you know, and, and maybe there's some, you know, and I, I could see an argument to say, well, let's scientists focus on science. And then we have some science communication folks who, who, who branch out. But I, what I think I've learned from what you've presented today is that, It's not in the sciences. It's much worse than that. It's not just that, um, you know, like we're not actively going out and communicating the science as a whole. It's that we are disincentivizing um, that story from being told to academics. And I and I think and correct me if I'm wrong, my guess is that most researchers who go into their fields go in because they really want to make a difference, not just on the five people are going to read their article, but also well beyond, right? And then we kind of get sucked into the, here's the rules of the game. You want to get tenure, well, you need to get this many grants and this many articles and this many peer-reviewed journals, and then it's kind of like you know, I could see 15, 20, 25 years later waking up and being like, well, is that like, is that why anyone went into science? I can't imagine, right? Or or very few. Um, So kind of it it, it almost feels like Tapping back into that initial, you know, f- spark that, that that was the reason that you went into it in the first place, and it really requires. I mean, I have so much respect for your authors because it requires such a sense of altruism and 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 giving of their own time and selves, which really they're not rewarded for. Right? I mean, at least in the very kind of simple um, material sense, right? Um, you know, and 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 I think that if there's a point to be made to whether I guess it's really to the universities and the in- institutions is that if you want science, scientific reputation to, to get better, well, you don't even need to necessarily actively, you know, work on that. Just stop disincentivizing <laughs> researchers from publishing things that, you know, uh, and, and they, you know, like I can't, I can't possibly, and we can discuss this. I don't know if it's important or not to go down this rabbit hole, but like why can't a, scientific book have an impact factor. Like to me, that's nonsense. You know, it's, it's, um, but, but I don't know, maybe there are folks more intelligent than I who, <laughs> who have good rationale behind <laughs> it.
0: No, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, it it can, and, and it sort of started out with having each book, um, have its own DOI, right? Like digital object identifier, which books didn't used to have. You would see those on a journal article in the, in the early days, um, when i was at springer vorlag you know i was publishing journals and so as well as books um seeing some of the techniques and the processes and the metrics around the journals as applied to books right like having a DOI, so that citations are are more sort of on par with a journal article citation um, is is important. So there's this sort of structural background that needs to happen, technical stuff and or you know metadata availability that needs to happen in order for that to be the case. Um, but you know, I just also think it really does have to do with shifting the reputation about um, about books in science. I think I think every scientist somewhere in them wants to be a science communicator. Right. Um, And so it was interesting what you said, like, Oh, you know, we sort of have the science communication branch that overlays the science in some case, and maybe part of the, The mission is to draw those things together to make people understand that the communication is not anymore. It might have we might have been able to have the science be separate from the communication of the science in some way in the past. But I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. And so, um, you know, like one of the things that Hopkins will do is they sometimes do um, media training for the scientists that come on board and, and, and publish with us. Um, so that they can be in a situation like the one in, we're in right now, right, to go on a podcast and talk about their work they're doing and explain to people why they should care. Um, and so, you know, I, I think books need to, in science, um, be able to get respect um, in, a, in a sort of broader sense, right, because other scientists respect scientists who write books, right it's about establishment of science that in some way has not been as supportive um it's hard you know because it's hard as in it, it's frustrating because also the reputation of scientific publishers as a whole is really problematic amongst scientists themselves right and i know this because i worked for Elsevier, right which um i've seen researchers just describe as health severe right i This notion that a scientific publisher is um, exploitative by nature, that we're doing free work, we're publishing for free, and, you know, and we even if we want to be, you know, open access, we have to have these, like, fees that we have to pay in order to get people to see our work. And it's all behind these expensive gated uh, communities where you know, it's, it's preventing the work that I'm doing from getting out there. We write the articles for free. The reviewers work for free. And you see this all the time, right? I mean, reviewing journal articles is a really time-consuming and heavy responsibility. Um, and, and you know at, at the big corporate STEM houses, you're not paid for that. Uh, and so there's a resentment, I think, of scientific publishers as a whole that's built up in a lot of sectors of, of the scientific community. There's even been um, uh, sort of, you know, protests um, against publishing with, with the big journals, right, um, from not just Elsevier, but the Springers and the Wileys, right? Um, and, and what's frustrating to me is to see that, in that sort of like all scientific publishing is painted with those kinds of broad strokes which is um just wrong right so um this idea of oh there's these billion dollar corporations that are benefiting off of the work that the scientists are doing for free well it depends it depends where you're publishing right um even the Elseviers and the Wileys have overhead costs that are staggering and you can't possibly imagine if you're outside that scenario if you're not in the industry, right? But but obviously for me personally even more so, a publisher like Johns Hopkins, we're a nonprofit, right? My job when I started at Johns Hopkins, my interview, I met with the CFO. He probably will not be happy that I say this, but Um, and, and I said, what can I do if you hire me into this position? What can I do in order to contribute to, to the press? Um, and he said, lose less money, right? That's what he said to me. And, and so all science publishing programs are not created equal and they don't all have the same kind of machine behind them too. And, and I don't know, I suppose I've, I've gotten on a soapbox about this a little bit, I apologize, but it is something that we need to change as publishers. We don't just need to change the way that science thinks about publishing. We need to change the way that publishing looks at science, right? And I think part of that is being more mission driven. We're not doing a good job of communicating to scientists the value that we bring as publishers, if, if that's the way people feel in general. Um, I don't think there are the same kinds of, um, I don't know, in in many sectors, at least, I don't think there are the same kind of resentment about books that there are about journals. But it is to some extent, especially, for instance, the high cost of textbooks. And so part of my job, I think, too, is to um, explode those kinds of notions about scientific publishing as being exploitative and make people understand that instead it is crucial outreach
1: yeah yeah being that you are bringing so much positive um to to, to the field and i think uh you know like have a positive attitude i, I don't want to i want to end off on a on a on a <laughs> on a high note because i and it does not discount anything that you've said until now because I, I i agree all heartedly and, and 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 support um that imp- all too important um distinction between different kinds of publishers um, maybe you could just uh, you had shared with me um, the last time we spoke um, a little bit about the the tree story um and I was just hoping that maybe you could share for the audience just just um, a little bit about kind of that book um and a little bit of 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 what you what you came to kind of learn um and 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 I think maybe that's a really great place to end because it's it's it it just drives home how you can take something that's very, you know, scientific and, and, and sciency and turn it into um, a story that I think anyone can really appreciate and relate to.
0: Yeah, and you're not going to go wrong asking me to talk about that book. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, I love all of my book babies, but <laughs> Valerie True's book is special to me, um, So Tree Story is an example of a book where I was spending time just looking at all kinds of research that I was interested in, um, which is arguably one of the most enjoyable parts of my job. Hey, what's going on out there in the world of science? What's cool? I think that came out of an Atlas Obscura article uh, that was about the science of dendrochronology, um, which is the science of studying tree rings. So I didn't know uh, that dendrochronology was a thing. I thought, you know, kids learn in school that if you want to know how old a tree is, you just, you know, count the rings on the tree, right? I, I thought there's an entire field of science that's dedicated to that. What, what is that even about? And so I wanted to know, and I started looking into it a little bit, and I thought, wait, this is cool. I don't, has anyone published about this? I, I haven't seen anything. So then I started looking at who is doing really uh, sort of like critical and interesting research in the area of dendrochronology. And I found Valerie Trouet at the uh, university of Arizona tree ring lab. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, you want to write a book? And that's what I talk about when I say that I have to be proactive, right. And in, in terms of publishing. And so As it turns out, what I suspected was right. Dendrochronology is fascinating. And it tells us so many stories about the way that humans are in the world. Right. And it also tells us about paleoclimatology, which ends up being really important in terms of um, looking at what our future climate may look like. Right. The past is the future in some sense. And so what kinds of modeling can we do out of looking at paleoclimate? How do we even know what paleoclimate looked like? Right. Well, one of the ways is we go back and we can look at tree rings and find that out. And then we can identify, Valerie way right, um, gendrochronologists can identify um, what was going on in the environment hundreds or even thousands of years ago by looking at the inside of trees. Um, so there are all these really interesting breakthroughs, right, that happen not just um, in gendrochronology or even in biological and life sciences, but in terms of anthropology um, in, and and. Uh, Archaeology, uh, all these things are, are implicated because, you know, for instance, one of the things that was discovered was um, we never knew, historians knew about the rise of Genghis Khan, right? Um, we never knew what happened that Genghis Khan's influence, right, and, and, and enormous holdings, right, his, his empire, what happened to it. Why would it go away, right? Well, as it turns out, um, we saw from tree rings that there was a huge drought. And we know that Genghis Khan's army was significantly uh, as successful as it was because it had horses, right? Because of their horses. Well, there was this lengthy drought, which you can see in tree rings, right? The tree rings become narrower and narrower on an annual basis when there's less and less moisture. Um, and, and so we see that there was this extensive drought and there was no grass for the horses, right? And there was no water for the marching armies. And so the umpire collapsed. It's this you know, mystery of history that we didn't have the insight. And then it turns out counting tree rings is the mechanism by which we make this discovery. That's a part of human history that has eluded us up until this point. And there's lots of stories like that in the book tree story, which is why it's called what it's called about both Valerie True's research and what it has uncovered, um, as well as other researchers work too, um, it's interesting because, as it turns out, trees are what they call a climate proxy, which is by looking at them we can see what happened in past climate, um, and then for um, you know the future of climate, obviously that has implications with relation to the models that we're able to build um, as a result of looking at what ha- what's happened in the past. So um, that ended up being a book that I, it was a, it was seemingly a small thing, seemingly esoteric research, why would there be a field attached to this? And then the implications are enormous. Um, That's a cool thing. Um, And in terms of my job, for all its complexities and its challenges, in a way, that's that's an evocation of its simplicity too, right? My job, as I see it, is that I'm supposed to take the position that I'm in and leverage it to illuminate and champion and disseminate work of scientists um especially maybe scientists that you wouldn't otherwise hear about or scientists from underrepresented groups right that don't get the recognition that they should be getting um and 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 you know bring that to the world um and and i you know i believe so strongly my authors um the work that they're doing is is not only providing us with intellectual breakthroughs but in a very real way it's making the world a better place um I think my authors might just save us all together.
1: Amazing. Tiffany, this has been, um, 50 minutes of, 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 really, you know, engaging and interesting and thought provoking, um, you know, discussion. Um, I can, I can at least say for myself and I'm sure for our audience as well. So thank you so much for taking the time, um, sharing really from, you know, your experiences and your thoughts and your feelings and your observations. And, and, and um, I think we're all indebted to, you know, kind of your, you know, the approach of you. And I know you're not alone, you know, those, those around you at at Hopkins and the other university press folks and, 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 and across, you know, across the entire publishing industry that, 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 that are working for good. Um, So thank you for sharing. Thank you for taking the time. And um, I hope that we, Get to continue this conversation because I think there's probably plen- plenty more that we could we could discuss and 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 many more hours where we can you know unpack some of these um, some of these discussions about how academia and publishing can work hand- in, hand in hand to really better better humanity.
0: Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking the the penetrating questions, which allowed <laughs> me to talk about some of the things that are really important to me. And I think, you know, to my authors and to Hopkins as a press. So I appreciate the time.
1: Thanks, Tiffany. Take care now.
0: You too. Bye-bye.